So a couple things. We are doing a baptism. Uh, we don't exactly know when because we have ordered a baptismal for this room and everything is back ordered like everything else in the country. So when it gets here, we will announce the official baptism date. We are going to do it right here in the gym. We have people that are ready to be baptized. Uh, if you have not been baptized and that is something you are interested in, please fill out the Connect card and let us know. And we would love to have you be a part of that amazing day. There is something about baptism that gets me every single time. Like when I watch a baptism occur, I promise you this, and this is no lie, that I tear up every single time. Because it represents someone who went from death to life, someone who walked away from the life that they used to live in. They were redeemed by the blood of Christ and they were given fullness and newness of life. If that doesn't cause you to celebrate, something is seriously wrong. Baptism is amazing, amen? So we are looking forward to that whenever it gets here. I don't know when, but hopefully within the next four or five weeks, we're hoping. The other thing is we have talked about youth stuff. We are still moving towards that. We are hoping to launch some youth stuff after the first of the year. We're looking at some office space and trying to build that out so we can have a spot to do that. We're still trying to figure out what that looks like. Uh, also for men's, women's weekly stuff, we're looking into that. So just so you know, we have not forgotten about it. We are moving in that direction. But you know this valley as well as I. It takes time because stuff is way too expensive and totally unavailable. Right? But we are moving in that direction. There was a man. He had received a letter in the mail of an inheritance that he did not know was coming to him. It came from a man, an elderly man, that he had helped out for the past 10 years, off and on. He knew that this man did not have any children or family left, but when he got this letter in the mail, it totally shocked him because he was not expecting it. In this letter, the man told him, if you will go into my house in the basement, there's a chest, and in that chest there is some gold and silver jewelry, and I want you to have it. So he goes into the man's house and he goes downstairs and finds the chest. It's covered with dust. He blows it off. He opens it up and he looks inside and there's a bunch of gold and silver jewelry. It's completely tarnished. It looks really pretty bad. It had been there for about 100 years, the guy had told him. But he opened it up and he said, ah, this is cool, but I don't really know what it's worth. So he brought it to a jeweler. The jeweler looked at it and he said, you know, there is some amazing value here possibly, but it is really blemished. It's not pure. It's tarnished. But what we can do is we can throw it in a fire. We can refine it. We have to get it up to about, this is crazy, the boiling point of gold is almost 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But if we will boil all this jewelry together, the impurities will begin to rise and come. And we can get something that is not quite 100%, but very close to 100% pure. So the guy's like, all right, go for it. I don't know what good this does for me now. And so a couple months later, he gets his gold and silver back. And he was blown away by what he saw. First, it was worth about $3 million. And he had no idea when he looked at this tarnished, just basically ugly and ruined chest of gold. And he looked at this and he's like, how could this possibly be that this that was tarnished is now pure? It's perfect. It almost looks as if it's completely brand 
new. He couldn't believe the transformation that had come now with some fire and polish. It was no longer tarnished, blemished, and buried in a basement, but it was pure, clean, and filled with luster. See, its past neglect had been completely redeemed. Literally, it was as if it was perfect and brand new. See, this is what Jesus has done for us with the gospel. He has taken something that is blemished, that is broken, that is forgotten, and he has cleansed it. He has redeemed it. He has refined it in fire to make something that lusters and shines. And that's what we're going to see in Malachi this morning. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus has done to redeem what is broken is astonishing. I've entitled this message, Soap, Fire, and Redemption. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and go left. It's right there. In fact, we're getting towards the end of Malachi, so it actually is probably just one page. But you can find it there. We're going to start in chapter 2. Verse 17, God, I pray this morning as we come into your word, God, that we would approach it in a way that enables us to hear what you want to say, God, that we would see the beauty of who you are, that we would look upon your word, and as we look upon your word, that we would gaze upon your beauty, that we would be stunned by your presence, that we would be amazed at who you are. God, one of the amazing things about your word is It is you, it reveals you, it reveals your character, it reveals your nature, God, and you are all that we need and you are all that we have. So God, I pray this morning for someone in this place, maybe that walked in here broken and beat down. God, maybe they are feeling dirty or broken because of some sin that they have given themselves over to. Maybe even last night, God, and They felt like the last place they should come was this place, God, but really the first place that they needed to be was right here because you are a God that redeems, that refines, that cleanses, God. And I pray this morning that you would do a deep work in this place, God. Would you erase anything from my flesh that wants to escape and replace it with your spirit, God, that you would be lifted high. Do a deep work, God, redeem and restore in this place. Cleanse, for that's what you do. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17 says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Who is wearied? Well, we have seen, if you've been here for any time, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and they have wearied the Lord with their words. But they say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice. If you've been with us for any time, you know that one of the things that Israel had been waiting on was the coming of the promised Messiah, this Redeemer who is to set them free, who is to bring them out of the state that they were in and they had not yet seen this Messiah come yet. And so they begin to doubt God. They begin to doubt him on his promises. They begin to doubt him that he was going to fulfill the very thing that he had promised to do. And what do delayed promises often cause? Rebellion. You may have seen it in your own life. 
God, I'm waiting on this answered prayer. God, I'm waiting for you to do this thing in my life. And I just think you've neglected me. I thought, I think maybe you've forgotten me. And as we begin to experience that, sometimes the first place we want to do is we want to run from him. We want to rebel from him almost as if, hey, God, if you don't see me, well, I don't see you either anymore. This is the nation of Israel. They're waiting on this king, this Messiah, to bring them what they thought was going to be out of bondage, to make them in a completely a powerful nation again. And he had not yet shown up. So God says that this is what you have done. You have wearied me by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. What happens when we walk away from God is we begin to think that good, that evil is good. I mean, we don't have to look very far to see that this is happening in our country. I mean, how do we expect God to bless a nation when we're electing people that aren't even serving the God of heaven? How do we expect God to bless a nation when we're murdering millions of unborn babies and then we say, God, that's okay, we still want your favor, bring your blessing upon this land. And hear this, if you're in this room and you have walked through an abortion, I want you to hear this, that it is not the heart of God, but as we're going to see this morning, he can cleanse and redeem and restore. But that's not his heart. See, we of a nation, we as a people have walked from him, have wandered from him. We have done the very same thing that Israel is doing. And we're saying, well, we just call evil good. And hey, God, will you bless it anyway? It doesn't work that way. God wants our heart. And if we will return to him, he will restore. If we will return to him, he will redeem and he will do things. He will take what is tarnished and make it luster again. So here's Israel, and then they say, well, they've also asked, well, where is the God of justice? I find it almost comical. We do the same thing. God, when are you going to restore this nation? When are you going to bring justice on what is evil? When are you going to do all this? Yet we just continue to call evil good. God's saying, just return to me. Let me cleanse what is tarnished and watch as I show myself faithful. We need to define a term here, weary, because some of you may be thinking, well, I thought God did not get tired. So what does it mean by you have wearied the Lord? We see in Isaiah 40, 28, it says this, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Psalm 121, 3 through 4 says this, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So how can God be weary? It's not talking about God does not weary in the works, in, in orchestrating and holding creation together. He does not weary in that. He does not get tired. What Malachi is saying is that God is wearied over his people's unbelief. He's wearied over their tolerance for sin. Parents can relate. It would be like you telling your kid, how many times do I have to tell you not to do that? Minus this without the same kind of anger and impatience that we sometimes tend to express. Because God doesn't express that. But he's just saying, Israel, how long are you going to wander? 
you're wearying me in the way that you are running from me, in the way that you are giving yourself to this sin, in the way that you are calling evil good and then asking for my blessing. See, this rebellion was worrying, wearying him. And we have often done the same thing in this era of grace. Grace is the most astounding thing that the mind can comprehend, as is mercy. But sometimes we use that as a license to sin, to call evil good, and then ask for the justice of God. God is saying, Israel, just return to me. And then he's gonna, about to show us and tell us what he does to a people that he loves, that he gives unmerited redemption. He gives unmerited cleansing. It's stunning. Verse 1, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the message of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is this messenger? It's the same messenger that Isaiah talked about, John the Baptist. We see it in Mark chapter 1 fulfilled where... Mark says, behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way. And then he goes on and says, he will be baptized in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God is saying that I'm going to send a messenger before Jesus. This is going to be a prophecy of Christ coming to atone for sin. But he's saying, I'm going to send a messenger before him, one who is going to prepare the way that preaches a message of repentance and a turning from sin. We also see it in Matthew 11:10, which says this, this is he whom it is written, behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before him. And then don't miss this because he says and suddenly he will another messenger will come to the temple. This was a literal prophecy that was fulfilled in Luke 2:22. It says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, who? Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Here was Jesus coming to the temple at a completely unexpected time. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And don't miss this because we're going to spend a lot of time on it. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of the former years. You have to imagine that when Malachi said this, the hearts of the people had to have leapt within them with this great excitement that, oh, finally, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come and do away with all those that do evil against us. He was going to come and deal with their sin and their rebellion. See, Israel thought when this Messiah came that he was going to come and straighten out everyone but them. And this is exactly why when Jesus came, the Jews and the religious leaders rejected him. Jesus made no move to overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel to their position of power they enjoyed under David and Solomon. Rather, he came calling his own people and religious leaders to repent, Matthew 4, and insisted the kingdom was not of this world, Luke 17. 
See, Jesus was not coming as a political savior. He would come as a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He was coming to refine and cleanse. He was coming to redeem, not necessarily restore to them their political power. See, a refiner removes impurities from metal and a fuller removes filth from clothes. And so was the Messiah to come to refine and cleanse. Verse 5 and 6, and then we're going to apply it. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and those that do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So here's what I want to do with the time that we have left. I want to look at how God responds to those who have wearied him, who have run from him, who have refused to pursue him, who have profaned his name, who have offered him nothing but leftovers, as we have talked about, who have been unfaithful, who have had moments of extreme doubt, who have wanted to throw in the towel and just give up on everything, who have cheated him and or their spouse, who have given themselves to lies and addiction, those who have run so far that they feel like God has every right to leave them. That was Israel. And what was God's response? How did he respond? We're going to look at three things. He refines, he cleanses, and he redeems. He refines, he cleanses, and he redeems. Number one, he refines. Malachi says that God was a refiner's fire. See, for metal, silver, and gold, as we talked about earlier, to become pure, it has to go under extreme heat. It has to be completely melted so that all the impurities begin to rise. And when the impurities begin to rise, they can be removed. And when it is cooled, what is ended up, what ends up is something that is almost completely and utterly pure. Some of it is close to 99.9, 99.8% pure gold or silver. It's crazy because the temperature required to melt gold is 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit, a.k.a. very hot. (laughs) The temperature required to actually boil gold is 4,892 degrees Fahrenheit, which is extremely piping hot. But it has to get to this point for these impurities that they would begin to rise so that it would be refined There was a young man who happened upon a silversmith one day, and the young man asked this question. Why do you heat the metal, he asked. The silversmith said, in order to make precious silver, I have to remove all the impurities that make it worth less than it really is. The young man said, well, why do you sit while you work? It's interesting because if we look at verse 3, it says God will sit as the refiner and the purifier. This boy is asking, why do you sit? What did the silversmith say? I have to watch the fire closely and hear this. Too little heat and the impurities will not be removed. Too much heat and the precious metal will be destroyed and made worthless. Still intrigued, the young man asked, well, how do you know when the silver is at the right temperature? And the silversmith smiled with a grin in his eyes and in his face. And he said, I know the purifying is complete when I can see my reflection in the silver. You know what's stunning? 
is that God refines his people the exact same way. See, he uses moments of suffering and struggle and pain, some moments where we feel this intense heat, like we can't make it any longer to remove the junk, to remove the impurities in our lives, to purify us and to remove the blemishes. And hear this, he doesn't just sit above you with looking upon and watch you burn. He sits there right next to you. It says it right here in verse 3 that he is sitting there as the refiner's fire. It's this image of God, you here, God here, sitting you, looking you in the eyes, controlling the thermostat so you don't get too little heat and you don't get too much heat. And he looks at you, ensuring that he gives you just the amount of heat needed to perfectly refine you. And when does he know that he's finished? When he can see his image reflected in you. And it's a lifelong process. It never ends. This side of heaven, we will always be refined. So hear this. If you are feeling some pressure, if you are feeling like you are in the heat of the fire, something that you can't control, it is a blessing because God is sitting there with you, controlling the thermostat to just the right temperature so that you don't burn and be destroyed, but also so you have enough heat to refine you. If you're not feeling any heat this morning, if you're not being challenged in any way, I would be a little bit nervous. God refines his people. He's a refiner's fire. See, his purpose in refining is not to destroy you and not to make you suffer and not to steal your joy. It's so that you would reflect the image of your Savior, that you would receive abundance of life. That's what the refiner does. He's a master at it. He's a master at the thermostat. So maybe you're in this room this morning. And the fire is hotter than you think you can handle. Maybe there's a situation that you cannot control. Maybe there's a feeling of rejection that you can no longer bear to even process in your mind. Maybe there's a prayer that's remained unanswered for a number of years and you can't figure out why the heck God is not showing up. Maybe it's a life, a lie that has been recently exposed in your life and maybe the heat is pouring on because it was just exposed. Maybe it's a temptation that you think is too great to handle. I want you to hear this. God is sitting right with you, and he is in absolute control of the thermostat. Unlike this room that I can't seem to be able to control, I don't know, I touch those buttons and it never works, and it's cold and it's hot, and I don't know. That's not God. He's in complete and under control. He's got the perfect temperature. It's never too cold. It's never too hot because that's what the master, the refiner, does to bring out the impurities to make us reflect his image. See, a fire that's just warm does not refine, and a fire that is too hot does not either, for all it does is destroy. Hear this, fire does not only refine, but it also frees. I don't know if you've heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. But here's the story. King Nebuchadnezzar made this statue of gold, and he commanded all the land to bow down and worship this statue at the sound of the flutes and the lyres and the harps and the music. He said, when you hear the music, you are to bow down and worship this golden statue. But there was three men in the land who would not bow, Shadrach, Meshach. And Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar heard this, it 
frustrated to him to no end. And he's like, there's no way. I, I, they have to worship. So he said, bring them to me. I'll deal with them. I'll fix them up. So these three men come before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I hear that you're not bowing. Next time you hear the music, you shall bow. And listen to what the men said. And he said, if you don't, then I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. And who will deliver you then, he asked. And this is the response. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 317. Now this greatly angered the king. He said, oh yeah, I'm going to show you. So he ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than normal. And he told the guards to grab them and bring them to the furnace. The furnace was so hot that it actually killed the guards that were delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the spot. It killed them because of the heat. Throw them into the fire, and to their astonishment, they look in, and all of a sudden, they see four men in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar's like, what the heck is going on with that? I threw them in, bound, their hands and their feet were bound, and now I look in, and their hands are loose, their feet are loose, and they're walking around in a fire that is seven times hotter than normal. Hear this. This is what Scripture records. But I see four men unbound walking, Nebuchadnezzar said, in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. The king's counselor gathered together and saw that the fire had not yet had any power over the bodies of those men. And hear this, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. What was burned? The very thing that was holding them captive and God used fire to do it. See, when God turns up the fire, when he allows the thermostat to be turned up, not just does it refine, but it also frees. And freedom is a byproduct of refinement. They go hand in hand. It's amazing. So often we run from the fire, we run from the things that God is trying to refine us in, and then we wonder why we're still walking in slavery, why we're still bound up and we can't figure it out. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. See to it that you're no longer bound by what? The yoke of slavery. God uses the fire to set his people free if we will come to him and trust him with the thermostat. He uses it. It's how he works. And when you do this, when you trust him in the situation that you cannot control, when you trust him in the feeling of rejection that you can no longer bear, when you trust him in the prayer that has remained unanswered for far too many years, when you trust him in the lie that has been recently exposed, when you trust him in the temptation that you think is too great to handle, when you trust him in the flames and with the thermostat, he not only refines, but he frees. Talk about amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. For freedom is a byproduct of refining. Number two, he cleanses. See, he not only refines in the fire, but he makes clean what is dirty. We see that in the text that he was a refiner's fire, 
in verse 2, and like fuller's soap. To understand how God cleanses, according to how he was going to cleanse his people, they're unmerited. They didn't deserve it, but he chose to do it anyway. We have to understand what is fulling. Fulling, according to the dictionary, is this. I'm going to read it because I could not memorize it. The process that increases the thickness and compactness of woven or knitted wool, subjecting it to moisture, heat, friction, and pressure until shrinkage of 10 to 25% is achieved. Essentially, it's this. It's a step in woolen clothemaking, which involves the cleansing of the cloth to eliminate oil, dirt, and all impurities until the material is what? Pure white and made thicker or given more substance. The fuller's job is not just to clean the dirty wool, it's to actually give the wool the fullness of its substance, how it was created to be, to function in the most necessary way. Fuller's soap, on the other hand, was this soap that, it wasn't just ordinary soap, but it was soap that contained alkaline, which removed oil by mixing it with the oil molecules and made it dissolve. So here's the fuller. He's stomping on the wool. He's putting this alkaline soap in called fuller soap. Think of it as Dawn dish soap. It's the same thing. It fights oil and grease. Not all soap did that at the day. So they're cleaning it to make it white as snow, but also giving it substance. That's what God does when he cleanses. He doesn't just make things that were dirty pure. He actually gives it the fullness of substance, the way that we were supposed to function, the way that we were supposed to live. That's what he does when he cleanses. And when he cleanses, you are no longer dirty. You are completely pure and clean. And when he cleanses, you are no longer weak and frail. You're given the substance of Christ to sustain you through the storm, to sustain you through the thermostat uppage called substance. God does that when he cleanses his people. See, the goal is not just to make us clean, it's to give us substance. That's what Fuller's soap does. That's exactly why God said that he was a refiner's fire and like Fuller's soap. Whew. You want to talk about the depth of God's word? Is God's word boring? We just look into it, we see this amazing characteristic of God, of how he pursues his people and what he does for his people. See, this is exactly what Jesus came to do, to cleanse and give substance. God was telling Israel, though you have wandered from me, though you have rejected me, though you have turned from me, I'm going to send one to you who will cleanse you and make you complete. He will be like Fuller's soap. His name was Jesus. You didn't deserve it, Israel. But I'm going to send him anyway. I'm sending this messenger who's a refiner's fire, who's Fuller's soap. To cleanse you, to refine you, and to give you substance. This is what Jesus came to do. Isaiah 1.18 says this, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become 
like wolves. See, Jesus came to take our dirty, grimy, mangled, smelly, mangy wool and make it white as snow and make it full, completely pure, lacking impurities. Because of the work of Christ, he fulfilled what the law could not do. I don't know about you, but I remember one time when I was young that I said something that I should not have said, and you may have had it happen to you. You got the soap to the teeth. I just remember this one time. It only happened one time, but I said something, and I should not have said it. And so the first response was, all right, head to the bathroom. Where's the soap? So the soap gets jammed in my mouth, and I'm starting to gum it. And, like, it's just nasty, it's disgusting, and I'm thinking, what is the purpose of this? Isn't this what a toothbrush is for to wash your mouth? Soap? You may have had it happen to you at some point, but what's the purpose? The purpose of this, when your mouth is washed out with soap, is to basically metaphorically tell you that the dirtiness that came out of your mouth was going to be gone. So next time you decided to think about doing that in front of your parents or a family member, that you would remember the taste of this soap in your mouth and it would keep you from doing it again. Let's be honest, what does it do? It just keeps you from saying it in front of them again. It doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't even purify the mouth. Well, that's what it's said to do, but it has nothing to do with the heart. It doesn't purify the heart. All it does is stick a bunch of suds in your gums. It's disgusting. It was the same thing with the law. It was essentially like soap. Whenever Israel messed up, they were reminded of how and why they messed up. And the consequences were where they began to try to hide from God. I tried to hide from my parents or whoever. When you get the soap, well, I just won't say that around them again. So you begin to rebel and you begin to hide. But it never fixed the problem of the heart. It never did anything with that. All it did was give you a nasty flavor. See, the problem was that when Israel sinned, they had to sacrifice an animal But they were only clean until they messed up again. And no sacrifice could completely cleanse the heart. Hear this. The law could remind them of their failures like soap did to me of what came out of my mouth and my need for forgiveness. But could never fully cleanse the soul. The soap cleansing my mouth had nothing to do with my heart. They needed fuller's soap. One to cleanse their soul and not just their actions. One who could measure, could be the measure of measuring up to God's standards because they could never do it on their own. And along came Jesus. He came not to wash the mouth, but to wash the soul. He came not to condemn, but to cleanse. He fulfilled what the law could not and offered life. That's what God is saying. Hey, Israel, you know that law thing? You know that soap in your mouth that all it does is make you kind of try to hide from me and run from me and you mess up and you sacrifice another animal and then you realize that you got to sacrifice the next one because you've already messed up again on the way from leaving sacrificing the animal. You know all of that and how it doesn't really do anything to your heart? I'm going to do something greater. I'm going to send a king. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a savior of the world that becomes that fuller's soap that makes you completely pure and full of substance. Want to talk about love? 
There is no greater love. Nothing trumps it. Nothing is greater than that, that he has come to wash over your soul and make it completely pure. The last thing we see is this, that he redeems. Redeem means this, to recover ownership of by paying a specific sum or to free from slavery by providing compensation. The Bible says that Christ actually bought us from sin and death by the shedding of his own blood so that we could approach him, and don't miss this because it's right in the text, in righteousness. We couldn't approach God in righteousness before Jesus. It was impossible because we were not righteous. Because of Jesus, we have become the righteousness of God. God views his people as righteous, as pure, as perfect. And if we look in the text right here, it says, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. To bring them in righteousness was almost utterly impossible before Christ. Christ said, I'm going to come and redeem. How does he redeem? By taking the guilty and declaring them innocent. By taking the unrighteousness and making it righteous. Enabling us to come to him in righteousness, which means without sin or guilt, completely justified before him, which means it's that we are free of guilt or the penalty attached to sin and being made perfect because of Christ. Not only does he refine, not only does he cleanse, but he redeems and enables us to come to him in righteousness because he has declared us righteous by the blood of Jesus. If you have surrendered to Christ in this room this morning, he no longer sees you as a sinner but a saint. Essentially, you're either a saint or you ain't. I'm not talking about Mary and Peter and Paul. I'm talking about a blood-bought child, son, or daughter of the king that abuse you as righteous, that you can come to him in righteousness because he has atoned for your sin and set you free. You want to talk about a redemption story? Cinderella man ain't got nothing on that. That's redemption. That the message of the gospel is he restores what is broken, that he puts together what is fractured, that he holds what is falling, that he sustains what is unraveling, that he loves what is unlovable, me, and he redeems what is guilty. That's redemption. Giving us what we did not deserve, what we did not earn, what we could not earn on our own merit and strength. That he decided to declare us Righteous and redeemed, that he refines us and that he cleanses us. So here's the question. Do you know this great king? See, for the only way to endure the day of his coming, the only way to stand when he appears, is through being washed in the blood of Jesus. If you have not been washed in the blood, if you have not believed upon the finished work of Christ, if you have not surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, believed what he has given you to receive, hear this, you are not cleansed. 
You cannot be refined in the way that he wants you to be refined. And you are not redeemed, meaning you are separated from him. And what you are trying to do is not walk in righteousness. You're trying to earn righteousness, and you can't earn righteousness. If you are not believing upon the finished work of Christ this morning, you are far from him. You are removed from him. And he's saying, all I'm asking you to do is believe. Believe that my blood was sufficient. Believe that when I came and hung on a cross, it was for you. Believe it. And you will be set free in a moment and you will be redeemed. If the band wants to come up, hear this. With his blood comes soap, fire, and redemption. He cleanses with soap. He removes the oil and dirt, making you white as snow. He refines with the fire. He controls the thermostat until he sees his image reflected in you. This is a lifetime. And lastly, he redeems. He takes what is buried and tarnished to give it life and luster. It's the gospel. There is Nothing greater. There is nothing that holds more weight than this. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either redeemed or you're not. You're either a saint or you ain't. But there ain't no middle ground. Have you been redeemed this morning? Have you been cleansed? Are you being refined? This is what the gospel does. Did you walk into this place feeling like you're under extreme heat and you don't know how you're going to escape and you feel like God is putting so much pressure on you that it's about to destroy you? Hear this. He will not do that. He sits with you. He controls the thermostat. And yes, it may be very hot. Gold boils at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's not until 5,000 degrees that the impurities begin to rise. Without heat, there's no refinement. It's actually his love that he would turn up the thermostat and not leave it so warm that nothing happens. It's how he works. It's how he grows us. It's how he shows himself to us. Will you accept it? But here's the deal. Soap, fire, and redemption is only available to those who receive his free gift and believe upon his finished work. Have you believed it and have you received it? If you haven't, today's the day. There's no excuses to wait. You're not guaranteed another hour. You're not guaranteed another minute. You could walk out of this door today and refuse to receive what God has asked you to believe. And in that moment, in your last breath, your Fate has been determined. You will spend eternity separated from a holy and a righteous God. And it's not because he didn't love you. It's because you chose to reject his love. Where are you this morning? Have you believed? And I'm not talking have you sat in the pews for 40 years or for three months. 
I'm talking, do you have a vibrant relationship with this king of glory who is offering you what you cannot get on your own, a cleansing soap, a refining fire and redemption that allows you to walk in righteousness. If you don't have it, today is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. And watch as God begins to offer the fullness of life. You don't like silence, do you? Do you know that silence is when God speaks? your heart's beginning to pump a little bit, it may be because God is trying to draw you to himself. Don't run from him. Salvation has nothing to do with all that you know about him. It has to do everything with having a real relationship with him. There's a whole lot of people, the Bible says, that know a whole lot about this word, that do a whole lot of things in the name of Jesus that are far from him. He says, when I return, there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do miracles in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name, Lord? And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you because the 12 inches from your head to your heart can keep you from a relationship with Christ. So maybe you're in here this morning and it's all been about head knowledge and it's all been about all the stuff that you know, but you've really never been refined or cleansed and you're definitely not redeemed because you're walking in your own righteousness and not Christ's. If that's you, today is the day of salvation. Don't run from it. Eternity is at stake. And life and joy are in the balance. You will not have peace without Christ. He gives a peace that passes all understanding. You can have peace when the thermostat is cranked way up because he, you know that he's on the dial. And you can praise him in the fire, not reject him. You can praise him in the heat, not rebel against him. That's how he works. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the things that you're doing in this place. God, I thank you that you are refining fire. I thank you that you are fuller soap and that you allow us to walk in righteousness because of how you have redeemed. God, I pray in this place right now that if there's someone in this room that has never given their heart to you, that has never surrendered to you, God, maybe they thought they were saved for a whole long time. But maybe today they realize that they really haven't had a relationship with you. They've just had a bunch of knowledge about you, God. If that is you this morning, come to him, believe upon him, believe that when he hung on a cross, when he went to the grave and exploded out of it, that it counted for you, that it counted for your unrighteousness, your tarnished life, and that he wants to give you life and luster. If that's you in this place, I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand and say, that's me. I need salvation. I need the gospel. I've been running from far too long. God, just save me. Set me free. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this place this morning. I thank you for how you're moving. 
I thank you that none of this depends upon me or the band or the church, or the staff or the people. It all depends upon you and the power of your spirit being unleashed amongst your people. Would we walk in freedom, God? Would we walk cleansed? Would we walk redeemed? Would we enter into the fire knowing that freedom is a byproduct of refinement, God, and trust you with the thermostat? We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.